Hello and welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. My name is Jeremy and I'm here with my wife Rosie. And today we're talking to our sister-in-law, Eleonor. So Eleanor is an American chef based in England and she is married to my little brother, Ollie. In this episode, we talk about her entire life journey from growing up in a privileged family, competing internationally in horse riding, family struggles, and then discovering a passion for food and cooking and making it a career. It's a difficult career choice though, as this path is not easy to reach success in this field. Eleanor shares the craziness of the job, the ups and downs of creating a successful food business, whilst also dealing with health issues. We really hope you enjoy this episode. Hi Eleanor, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited for this episode. I can't wait for people to hear your story. So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Rosie. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, oh man, I'm so excited about this episode. Oh, yeah, that's just... (laughs) That's like Eleanor five years ago saying, oh man, all the time. Um, But yeah, inside joke is that I used to say, oh man, all the time. And Jeremy used to make fun of me all the time about it. It seems to be quite an American thing that has been kicked out of me. But (laughs) I don't think Jeremy's going to let you forget it. No, No, I don't think so. There's some colloquialisms that I've kept. But um, yeah, for the most part, I have more of a British way of speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. At least all of my American friends and family so say, say I sound British when I go back to the States, which is categorically not true, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> they somehow say that I sound more British, but oh well. Anyway. So to give a little bit of context about this inside joke and stuff, uh, yeah. Eleanor is our sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we are very happy to have you on the show today to share, yeah, your life story uh, until mm. now. So, yeah. as you uh, as you mentioned, you're from the US, but you're currently living in the UK. You are yeah. a mm. chef. Uh, food mm. is your passion. It's been around your life for most of the most mm. part of your life. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive into your career and everything that you be you've been doing. But we're gonna start with yeah your American roots first, and okay. uh, yeah. So if you take us a little bit about where you come from. Um, so I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky, and for people that are not from the states, I'm in a flyover state, as we call it. So it's sort of <laughs> in the middle. Um, I say the closest place that non-Americans would know would be we're about five hours drive south of Chicago but we're technically in the south um, just barely and uh, it has a lot of southern culture that I grew up with lots of southern food and southern ways of life um, lots of monogramming which they might Jeremy and Rosie know about because my aunt <laughs> buys everything with my initials on it or you know, my husband's initials on it so there's lots of like little things like that that I grew up with and um, yeah I grew up quite privileged um, and you know went to private high school and private college or university and um you know, I always, you know, think about that in terms of my ability to get to where I am and um, quite, you know, blessed in that way. So, yeah. I've just realized one thing is not related yeah. to your personal story, but I think now most people know where Kentucky is thanks to KFC. 
I just literally I don't, I thought about I, it. Genuinely, nobody knows where Kentucky is. Even no? it, even oh. if it's even if it's you know you know KFC, nobody knows actually where it is on a map. Which yeah, I, I appreciate. Map, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you actually had to pick it out on a map, it'd be more difficult. But That's that being said, I, I don't think I'd be able to. I don't think I could put all of the European countries where they are. So there's yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Um, but you know that's okay so yeah so can you tell us a little bit about growing up in in kentucky i i think most people including myself before mm. i moved to the us a little bit and stuff have this image of southern states being you know very white and with you know cultural uh, story I don't know, very Americans, like people like to say, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, and stuff like that. I... Kind of the the way that people think about Kentucky is that nobody wears shoes. I mean, that's sort of a horrible <laughs> kind of stereotype. And in Appalachia, yeah. which is more in the mountains in eastern Kentucky, um, that may or may not be true. But I grew up in the biggest city in Kentucky and for me, the states is not necessarily as divided by state culture. It's divided by rural versus urban culture. Mm. And mm. because I grew up quite urban in the biggest city in Kentucky, which is probably the same size of, you know, Leeds in the UK, um, I don't have as much of like a rural background. Yeah. Um, and you know, growing up in Kentucky, there's quite a lot of stereotypes in terms of like horseback riding and horse racing. And I did, yeah. um, I rode horses for when I was six years old until I was 18, quite competitively, um, and really loved it. And, you know, we're in the heart of, well, where I grew up is in the heart of that type of riding that I did. And so it's really nice to be able to like grow up in a place where it's like, 30 minutes away you can just go and drive and be at a horse farm and it's really not like a big complicated difficult thing um so that's was one of my main kind of hobbies growing up and I did grow up a lot of my family is very conservative so I grew up with lots of conservative ideals but I didn't I don't know kind of quickly when I was 14 or so decided I don't necessarily agree with all of this and I don't know how that um came about but I'm like my sister and I are like the liberal black sheep of the family <laughs> uh, at least on that side so it's I don't know how that happened exactly but it just was like I just don't always agree with all of these different um ways of thinking in terms of the conservative side of it but it's quite early to realize that as well 14 years old I don't know I mean it was just like a quite um before that, I was, you know, I think when George Bush got reelected for the second time, I was like, oh, yay, that's great. Like, that's what my family thinks. And then the next yeah. time I was like, no, I don't agree with this. I don't understand mm. all of it. Mm. Um, but that's, I don't know, you just kind of are able to, the, the benefit of having a really conservative family is that you have a different perspective and a different side of it. And you're always open to, well, they force you to listen to things that <laughs> their perspective. I mean, every dinner yeah. and conversation is a different perspective and I may not agree with all of it, but at least I'm exposed to it and and I have an understanding of their different sides. Um, yeah. But yeah, again, when you think about the difference between urban and rural 
culture, the rural rural areas are going to be generally more conservative, and urban areas will be more liberal in the states, especially. Yeah. So, so what kind of child and teenager were you in terms of personality? Oh, uh, I was a, a goody two shoes <laughs> in terms of I hated getting in trouble. Uh, I put a lot of effort and energy into my schoolwork. I was a straight A student. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of friends. Uh, it took me a long time until high school to really force myself to get um, a few good friends that I still have to this day, but it was a difficult kind of road uh, for that. But I just paid a lot of attention to being able to I don't know, just be successful within my academics. And um, that's basically me. I mean, I was just like more of a goody two-shoes more than anything else, but that has a lot of... that. The reasoning behind that is, is a little bit more complicated, but... And were you very focused on your on your studies and on, on the point of being a good student because of like a desire, because you're a competitive person or because more of like your bringing and parents telling you you need to be good at school to do xyz in the future um so i've had a, a lot of thought about that recently and th the reality is is that i grew up with an alcoholic mother and my dad being married to her was they were never neither of them expected me to be very good at certain things but one of the things that happened was that I got a lot of praise when I did things well and so you kind of internalize that and say mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. if I get praise for doing and getting a straight A's and it's something that I can control in my life when there's so many other things that are out of control in my life then you can be happier about it and so like you can yeah. say I don't know like when I was in ninth grade when kind of everything hit the fan I got a lot of awards at the end of the year for my academics and for my sport and um, I got like an, a lot of awards at my school function and it was just a very odd scenario of being like okay well what do I do with all of this you know like you know where's my family and what am I doing with it but then you know, you just get the praise for it and you just continue going saying you have to keep going and being good at all of these things because that's what you get praise for. You know, I mm. like you, like Rosie and my husband Ollie grew up with, you know, just be happy and doing what you're doing as opposed to anything else. And I never really had that. I had, you know, just only praise when I did well. And you know, that's, it got very much internalized growing up um, and kind of where my competitive side comes from, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. What were your favorite subjects at school? Math, science. Um, I, I didn't love reading. Uh, I have a really hard, I'm a really, really slow reader. So I kind of stayed away from things that would require immense amounts of reading, like history mm. and English. Um, mm -hmm. and it was, it just was like a very tiring thing, but when it came to math and science, I could kind of listen in class and take notes and get it and I didn't have to do as much work. So it was just an easier fit for me. Um, mm. I really 
yeah I still to this day love math and science but that being said I don't do math at all anymore but (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I don't you know I took calculus in high school and that was the last time I really took any real math so yeah Yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of us anyway yeah exactly (laughs) most of the time yeah Mm. and you you mentioned at the beginning about horse riding Mm -hmm. that you've done that for more than a decade then when you were young Um, is that something that you you choose to do because you just, I don't know, like horses when you're a kid or where is that coming it's from? It's something that my mom got me into when I was really young, when I was younger, um, because I loved animals, as you know, like I'm obsessed with my dog <laughs> and I'm obsessed with most animals, but I loved horses. And so she got me into riding and I just was quite good at it. And again, because of my privileged background, we could afford it, which it's, you know, not as accessible to many different areas or many different people. Um, but, you know, I rode from quite competitively from like 11 to 18. I rode in um two different international teams one was called an invitational and the other one was a world cup uh and flew over to south africa twice for that so that was quite cool and then it's a very small relatively small industry for that horseback riding but it's very tight-knit and the people that are still in it are generally like people that I rode with in the teams that I was on are generally still in it. Um, but, Mm. and well, they are either trainers or they're working in it or they still have horses. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that I can't do that now. It's not something that's as accessible to me here. Um, but I would have to like retrain if I ever wanted to learn how to ride again, because it'd be completely different type of riding, but um, I liked writing. I think I have a lot of internal issues with it because it's a very subjective sport and the better the horse you had. So like the more expensive your horse was kind of generally the better you would do. And if you were at a certain barn, you would get placed higher. And it was a very mm-hmm. subjective and difficult sport to be in for that reason. It wasn't just like, you know, in soccer, you have, you know, you have the most goals and that's it. Um, Mm. This was a lot more subjective and you didn't always know why the judges judged the way that they did. And, and it's, yeah. So I have kind of like a complicated relationship with it, but um, I also appreciate everything that it gave to me as well in terms of like learning how to be competitive and um, being able to go on a world stage and represent my country as well so yeah. i don't think i knew that before especially about <laughs> traveling to south america south africa yeah yeah that's crazy I don't, I don't talk about it often but i just feel like it was a lifetime ago but <laughs> yeah so and when did food came into your life uh, to the point of being something that you that you love so I I grew up in the age of the Food Network, which is the main television channel in the States that has all the different food programs. And I don't know, I just started cooking really when I was like 14. My mother was a terrible cook and we had a really traditional household. So it's not like my dad 
uh, took any any cooking participation. So my mom was the main uh, cook in the household, and she was quite bad. That's to be really frank. I mean, we grew up with lots of yellow dinners, as we would call it, because there was just like no variety in color. And um, but for me, I just started learning by watching everybody on these food shows, and I just internalized it. And everything that I read, everything that I consumed in terms of watching, I just I still know to this day and still like understand. It's something that like. I guess I appreciate that like my brain just understands how cooking works and like it absorbs all of the information where like other things in my life I don't absorb anything at all like how to use Excel properly like I don't absorb (laughs) it like I just don't understand every single time I have to look it up but when it comes to cooking I just I like when I read something I get it I understand it and yeah some from 14 onwards I would cook a lot it started a little bit with baking which is actually not my favorite thing to do now um but it just quickly became I'm gonna start cooking dinner for the whole family and I loved playing the game of like what do we have in the refrigerator and let's just cook something and so it just was it just started from there and when I was 17, so senior in high school, I, um, my mom helped me get a job at this wine bar and I started doing lots of dishes and prep work for them. And it was my first experience being in um, a kitchen and I kind of just fell in love with it. I loved the controlled chaos because if that <laughs> makes any sense, like, and I still to this day love the controlled chaos yeah. because growing up as I said with like chaos in my life with an alcoholic mother like being able to go into a kitchen and have chaos be controlled was really nice if that makes any sense Mm. so it's it's like you you're still living in chaos but then at at the same time it's a little bit more um controlled and nice to be in and it was just like you Mm -hmm. get the adrenaline rush with like a busy schedule and So that's where it started, Um, and my dad would not let me go to culinary school, basically. He said, do not go to culinary school, you gotta do something else. So I went, and I went to college and I got a nutrition degree instead, but when I was there, I worked at a James Beard award-nominated restaurant, and I worked at some other restaurants in the area in Cleveland, Ohio, but they were very good um, restaurants, and I just got a lot of experience from working in those places as well, so I'd work like 35 to 40 hours a week in addition to doing my studies. So, yeah, it was, uh, I gave up a lot of my social life (laughs) for it, but I'd really loved um, being in the kitchen and being able to do that as as well as making money, which was nice. Do you know why your dad didn't want you to go to culinary school? I don't. Because it wasn't like a a normal job or... Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know... I have the brain to sort of do anything that I wanted. Like I could have done anything and there's, I have a push and pull all the time of like, I really love cooking, but I also wish it was a little bit more, um, like it had a set path and my dad is the same way. He likes the set Mm -hmm. path. Like he's a doctor. So, you know, you go to university, you get a degree, then you go to med school and you get that degree and then you do residency and it's just like a very set path. And if you apply yourself, you will generally be successful in it. And 
I wish I had had that as well. I kind of wish I had gone in the direction of having like a, a set path because I would love to have you do this, you get this type of success, but it's that not like that. Um, so, but you know, it kind of just comes with the territory of, of working in yeah. the industry that I'm in, so. Yeah. Something I found fascinating about you, you said to me before is that you remember memories from what you ate oh, yeah. at certain places. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Cause I find that <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> I mean, even when I was a kid, like this is going to be awful but I would like travel to horse show horse shows and um with my mother and we would go to the cheesecake factory which is this kind of horrible but amazing restaurant in <laughs> the states I don't know if you've ever been to one but we it's never like went. we wanted to but we never yeah. went oh my god it's in incredibly ridiculous I mean their their menu <laughs> is a booklet because there's so many different options and you know they've all of their cheesecakes are centralized made and like flown out frozen and then you know they just serve them up they have like 50 different types of cheesecakes and they just have like an, a huge menu huge portions but i remember all of the things that i would eat i mean i remember like having the experience of going and getting like a gigantic raspberry lemonade and it was amazing and i remember all of those different things um i yeah i love I think food is a way of being able to connect with people and so being able to go out and to eat and to have that connection with other people but I just I loved experiencing new things as well so I I don't know it's the same thing with like Jeremy and like you know growing up in France and making pate with his family yeah like that's yeah. you know the connection that you have with people yes the memories yeah yeah so so when did you really decide to to make cooking a career like did you know also what you're getting yourself into because as much as for i, I love cooking mm. you know, for, for example but i also know that it's a business that i will stay away from because it's like you said like it's hard as hell yeah. i don't i don't know if most people realize how hard it is yeah because you work when most people socialize yeah. uh it's not just cooking a dish for an hour and putting it on a plate and, and serving and then going back home. It's hours and hours and hours. It's much harder, I think, than most people realize. Did you have that in mind when you started it? Uh, I didn't necessarily have that in mind. I mean, as I said, growing up, like social interactions were quite difficult for me and that kind of just continued mm. on and it was easier to like go and work <laughs> than it was to mm. like figure out my social life. So, you know, during university, like I didn't have like a typical co typical college, you know, you know, university experience because I just worked all the time. I worked on most of my weekends. Um, and I just really loved that. I loved like the consistency of it. But I mean, I didn't really know what I was going to do after I graduated with my nutrition degree. It was pretty clear that like becoming a nutritionist was not like a viable option to me. Like just fundamentally telling people what to eat without having like real culinary ways of making it sustainable for them. Like you can't just tell people to eat gross chicken breast and broccoli and have them want to eat that for the rest of their life. Like you have to be able to give them tools of how to cook things to be able to make new dietary choices in their life. And that really drove me crazy. So I knew pretty early on that I was not going to become a dietitian. Um, so I graduated and it was just a bit of a chaos at that point. I graduated early. So I graduated a semester early, so December. 
and my mom had died in September of that year. So it was just a very quick, like, what am I doing with my life? Uh, how do mm -hmm. I continue forward? And it just, I decided to apply for a master's in food science because that seems like an appropriate thing to do. As I said, like growing up, you know, you, you get degrees, you get, you know, like an education and that's sort of like an appropriate thing to do. So I applied for this master's at the University of Leeds and I got in and then I, after I got in or before I got in I had started working at a really cool restaurant in Louisville Kentucky which is where I was from because I had moved back to kind of like deal with the chaos of my mom dying and um, I think if I had gotten that job before I had applied I don't think I would have gone and done a master's because I loved it mm -hmm. that much um, mm. I really loved the people that I worked with and I loved the environment that I was in. It was the first real restaurant that like I had more creativity and autonomy and just like the, the level of workmanship that everybody had was at, at just a completely different level than anywhere I'd worked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just loved it. I loved every aspect of working in restaurants. Um, and that was kind of my goal. I was going to get a food science master's and I was going to go work at these Michelin star restaurants and help with their, you know, development team and use my scientific knowledge or whatever to make it uh, more interesting for them. And I, I didn't do that. That's obviously not what happened. But uh, I was that was the goal. That was the, the plan, at least. But that did not. Can you describe happen. in 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 a couple of easy words for everyone to understand what food science means food science in the way that i studied it it prepares you to go into basically food development so all of the products that are on your on any shelf uh at the grocery store is being checked and monitored by food scientists. So if you go and get a food science degree, you can either work in development like I did, which was more on the culinary side of things, or you can work on more of like the quality assurance side of things, which makes mm. sure that the product is the exact same every single time, whether that's, um, you know, looking at this food safety part of it or just looking at the actual quality of it. Um, and that's, you know you can you can get those jobs by doing you know chemistry degrees you can get those jobs by doing other things you don't necessarily right. have to do a food science degree but uh it hmm. the food science degree kind of gives you a general overview of you know the composition of food in terms of like what are the actual things that it's made out of but also like yeah. what jobs you can get into as well so hmm. and the food safety aspect of it yeah how was moving to Leeds and to England? How was this transition for you personally? I mean, I, again, as I said, like I applied for this program before I had gotten this job at this amazing restaurant and mm. I was really quite sad to leave in some ways, but for me, it was just an opportunity to be able to, you know, have a year out and you know move to a different country it wasn't too scary because they still spoke the same language 
That being said, they don't really speak the same language. <laughs> I was going to say, do they? So there's that issue. I mean, I kind of learned, you know, after meeting Rosie's brother, uh, that it was a very different way of speaking. But uh, I just thought it would be a year out and it would be, okay, I'm just going to yeah. do something really interesting for a year and I'll have an opportunity to be closer to Europe and to do things. And it was... You know, lo and behold, it did not end up being that way. I met Ollie, who's my husband, Rosie's brother, and I stayed, basically. <laughs> That's basically what happened. <laughs> I just chose to stay. I chose love. I chose um, that experience. And, you know, so now I'm still here because of it. <laughs> and the, the reason you applied in a food science degree in England was, cause I'm sure you could have applied to one in the US. I'm sure there must be at least one somewhere. There was, was it a specific reason you picked Leeds or it was also just maybe to, to get away it, uh, because it was of what was going on? a combination of issues. Uh, one, I had not taken the GRE, which is the standardized test to get into master's programs in the US. Oh, so if I okay. had wanted to apply to the US, I would have had to like wait a year, which I didn't want to mm. do. Um, and then the University of Leeds is very good in food science. It's probably, in terms of the food science part of it, like the top university, maybe not nutrition, but like the top university in the UK. And it just was like an opportunity. My aunt calls it constructive running away. So as I said, my mother died about a year before I moved. And so it's constructively running away from the issue of like, let's go do something different. And like, you know, just not really facing all of the different issues that I was having to deal with. Um, but that's, yeah, it was, it was a way of doing something productive and moving forward with my life, but not really yeah. knowing exactly where it was going to take me. So I've, I've never heard this expression, but I, I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. it totally makes yeah. sense. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't relate yeah. to it. Kind of what we've been doing for. Yeah, four yeah. I feel like so, I feel like yeah. you all understand what that is yeah. more than other people. But yeah. No, yeah, uh, I'll use it again <laughs> to justify myself yeah, sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> How did you adjust to to life uh, in Leeds and in the, maybe UK in general? You know, culturally speaking, and stuff like that is different. But also, you mentioned that in the US, uh, you you know, you're not like a social butterfly and stuff like that. How was moving in a new place where you don't know anyone? And I got incredibly lucky with my flatmates, um, at least one of my flatmates, and I just. We Well, I moved into brand new accommodation at the University of Leeds that was specifically built for international students, but mm. one of my flatmates was English, and I'm still really good friends with him today. So that kind of just helped spearhead being able to be more social. And um, it was quite difficult because the whole program, what they don't tell you about master's programs in the UK, is that it's really just about making money for the university. So they get lots of international <laughs> students in. And they pay, you know, three times the amount of fees that UK students pay. Yeah. And, you know, the entire program from all of the different master's programs within the food and nutrition um, program, there were maybe like five English people in total. Oh. So it was the rest of it was 
there was maybe like one or two Americans, but it was mainly either African or Malaysian people that were doing the program. Um, So that was culturally a little bit difficult because I just didn't have as much in common with with them. I mean, but it was it was a great experience in terms of getting to know them. It's just very different. Um, But yeah, I I very quickly met Ollie so I moved in September. I met Ollie like November 1st or something, which was at the Halloween party weekend. So it was a very quick turnaround of meeting Ollie. And then when I met Ollie, it was very like dive headfirst into this relationship. (laughs) And so I guess that was my main relationship that I created when I was at the University of Leeds. But he's the one that taught me all the differences between English and American speaking and how stupid I sounded and, (laughs) uh, you know, all of those things. But yeah, that's basically it. So Rosie was also here to remind you oh, about yeah, your American yeah. accent every five minutes. Yeah, exactly. I apologize for that. But like when I first met Eleanor, she would say things like toma- uh, tomatoes, which I loved and like, I still I don't say know, tomatoes. Say, I do yeah, say basil, I know. but yeah. It's, uh... I don't take the piss anymore. But like when I first met you, I was like, oh, cause I love accents. And yeah. I was, I was just repeating everything you were saying because I love it. And I think, I know. I think it was Rosie, taken the wrong Rosie way. Rosie has a, that thing where she can't listen to other people speaking differently and like not repeat it. She has, I don't know, I think there's a word for it where you just like have to repeat weird accents that are around yeah. you. It's not, it's not I now me. repeat them in my head and not out loud. So I'm now not like offending people. It's just in my head, I'm like, oh, I love that word they just said. Yeah, it's, it's just a different way of speaking. I mean, my, my inflection have definitely changed over the last whatever almost nine years like I I definitely don't sound as American as I used to but um, I guess people don't quite understand that you can grow up somewhere and have it like completely changed depending on where you go but yeah yeah Yeah. so throughout your degree you you went through your master degree at the beginning you had the intention of this time of your life being just a break away from the US mm. and obviously meeting only changed things. But when, at what point did you realize and maybe did you have this conversation about like, I might not go back? I don't know. It was, it was a lot of like difficulty with that. Like it was just like, well, what do I do? How do I do this? And I got this random job after my degree that I really, really hated. And it was a way of staying in the country. And I did it for about a year. And I was like, I can't do this any longer. Like, I don't know what to do. And um, I also was very ill at that point, but didn't really know it. And so it was very, that was a very difficult year. Ollie and I moved down to London um, and for his job. And then my job was also in London. And we just, you know, I just had a very difficult time adjusting to that life because it was a lot of commuting and I was really sick and didn't know it um and we ultimately just decided well we're just gonna get married and then you can do what you want well I can do what I want um and so it was very like I didn't really want to get married at 24 years old like that was not my goal in life like I had you know my dead mother's you know ear or her saying like don't get married young don't get married young and it's like very difficult to like make that decision and I kind of had to go into it being like okay well we can get divorced if needed like we can it's like that's not like the worst thing in the world but I do want to commit to this relationship for a certain amount of time and um 
so far so good at least <laughs> we're still together uh and you know i'm happy about that so i yeah basically just needed the thing is you needed that opportunity yeah. didn't you because yeah. you know had you gone back to america yeah. it might not have worked because ollie probably couldn't have just moved the, no, over there it, it for the sake of it anyway yeah. so it's one of those things about like you get married to then see if it'll come work and you can yeah you know have a healthy relationship which you have so it's it was a risk but it was you know worth worth taking yeah i mean it was very hard like i felt i don't really have the resentment now but it was a lot of like i had all of these career aspirations about what i wanted to do with my life and i look back at it and be like well even if i wanted to have worked in all these different restaurants or have done that lifestyle of working in restaurants and doing like the development side of things and like working at this high level you know, you'd be working 18 hours a day and I physically just can't do that because I have an autoimmune issue that has now been diagnosed. Like it took like many, many years to be diagnosed, but I have an autoimmune issue and it just makes me extremely tired sometimes, like debilitatingly tired. Like I'll fall asleep anywhere and like just can't walk, can't talk, can't do anything. And so we, you know, I, I spent a long time like having those issues and not really understanding it and not really being able to get over it um, until many, many years on. So, you know, I'm happy to be physically better, but it, you know, I look back at that life and be like, well, I couldn't have done what I wanted to anyway. Even if I had wanted yeah. to go and work in these restaurants, I just physically would have like collapsed and I would have mentally mm -hmm. collapsed because I physically would have collapsed. Um, so I'm happy that I'm not doing that necessarily. Um, I don't know, like it's, it's been an interesting ride of like, how do I get to the place where I want to with my career? Because all of the different avenues that I could take for a consistent job was very like not fun and not what I wanted with yeah. my life. So it mm. took basically being like, okay, well, if I can't find it elsewhere, I'm going to have to make it for myself. And Ollie's been supportive the entire time for that which is great so t talking about your your career and your aspiration uh at this time what was your ultimate goal uh, career wise what did you want to do i really wanted my own restaurant like i really wanted to be cutting edge and innovative and like spending all this time doing innovation in terms of like mm. being at the forefront of of food and that looked like in my head to go work at the very best restaurants in the world you know learn yeah. that be able to then get backing and support to be able to open up your own restaurant and then continue that forth um you know i'm kind of glad i'm not doing that because the amount of hours that it requires to work those <laughs> that that type of job is insane insanity i'm also pretty clear now that that's not my culinary journey either like being at the forefront of like changing how people view food is not necessarily like what i care about now because like i like going and eating at michelin starred restaurants but especially the higher end levels but i don't find it as memorable because it doesn't have any like cultural mm -hmm. context to me so if you are so innovative that the meal or the dish doesn't have any cultural context. It just doesn't mm -hmm. land very well and it's not very memorable. And so mm -hmm. what I view cooking as now is more of a curation. So 
you're curating ingredients, you're curating recipes, and you're curating ideas that then are tasty and delicious and have cultural context and, you know, create memories for people. And it's not as much as, like, being on the innovation side of, like, completely changing how we eat food. I, I don't care as much about that anymore. Like I like being innovative, but I also like being able to execute things to such a high level that people really love it. Like I'm really quite well known for chocolate chip cookies, but that's curating a recipe and mm. doing it perfect every single time, which is not in my mind very complicated, but it's being able to make sure that you get all of the different ingredients and make sure that it's you know going to be good every single time. But it's not anything new so yeah. we also need to shout out your mac and cheese because that's like jeremy's <laughs> favorite dish in the entire world ever <laughs> but yeah um i did want to talk to you about the pandemic because yeah. for a lot of people their lives stopped they lost their jobs they yeah you know struggled through it there was a lot going on and there was a few people where it actually helped them in their business and yeah. it's okay to say that you know yeah. it's okay to acknowledge that some people suffered yeah. and some people benefited I guess from it so I'd like to talk to you about your experience of the pandemic and how that kind of kick-started your new business yeah so I I'll back up a little bit Ollie and I had been working on converting we had moved out of London and we bought a house with a garage and we had had them in the mind in our minds that it would be something for a business for me and so we were we spent about a year until October 2019 creating it into like a commercial kitchen and we put in you know commercial refrigerator and we had a commercial um sinks and dishwasher and the purpose of that was to create a space where I was going to teach people how to cook I thought that would be really interesting um I really loved cooking I could you know tell people so much about it but then it wasn't really going very well first off so from like October to March 2020 it was not going very well I was not getting very far with it I, and I was certainly not making a whole lot of money and it was just very quickly in March 2020 of like oh my god well I can't do cooking classes at all anymore what am I going to do with my life like we just spent 12 grand or something on this on doing this garage like what am I gonna do and it was very just quickly like I didn't want to do it and it people had asked me about it in the past I didn't want to do it because it was just like it felt horrible as a chef to be making food and putting it in foil trays but I just did it anyway and Ollie reconverted our our website and allowed people to order meals that would be delivered so I, I changed my business from you know trying to be a cooking school to a meal delivery business and that allowed people to have breaks in the pandemic from cooking because it was just obviously a lot if you're cooking for your whole family three meals a day that's an yeah. immense amount of work and so it was just a break it just was an, an opportunity for people to have a break from that world and that life and so it first started out of being like a pretty big portions it was six person portions for everything um and you know it was just like pretty set pricing on that and we sold quite a lot it kind of took off because I'm a part of a expat community and they were very supportive which was great um and they were also desperate for a break 
from cooking for their <laughs> families and you know just needed something so I'm you know and then I've just continued on so I still do the meal delivery business about three days a week I deliver uh, meals between portions of four to portions of six of every single item and each day has a general theme to it so I have like yesterday or today I delivered like a Greek theme so people could choose between harissa chicken or lamb koftas or halloumi and then I had a couple different salads just like a traditional Greek salad or tabbouleh salad and people can choose what they want um, from that menu and just get it delivered to their door with really simple <coughs> reheating instructions. And it's funny now, like, after doing this for two years, like, I can't even, like, normally cook for myself. It's like, I'm just like, I can only reheat food when I eat my own food. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, okay, well, this is done. It's ready to go. Like, I've spent all the time, like, you know, creating the food in my in my kitchen. But when I come into my house, that's like, if it's not reheating, heatable then I'm not cooking <laughs> which has been good for Ollie because when it's his cooking days he just has to warm up your food that you've already done generally or we get takeaways because I need a break and he can't really yeah. cook as well as I can but yeah it's interesting what you said about at the beginning it's not something you wanted to do at all because mm. being a chef who put like good gourmet food into a tray feel, feels wrong I guess yeah. uh, for you and yeah it's, it's interesting because I, I also see it as it's also an opportunity for people to eat nice food mm. that maybe they don't know how to do themselves. Because again, you say, you know, like the, the recipe that you do maybe are not as disrupting as you, you thought they could be, you know, if you are in a yeah. Michelin star restaurant, stuff like that, your traditional meal that most people know but you have the skills and the knowledge to make them taste better than if I was making them. Yeah. I think that's and... that's that's the main thing. It's like Thomas Keller, who's a really famous chef, it's like 50% of cooking is coming up with the idea. So like curating the idea and yeah. being innovative or whatever. And then 50% of cooking is execution. And so the thing that I... I guess I take pride in now is a little bit more on the execution side of things is that I take the time and effort to be able to do things properly every single time. Yeah. And mm. I, I cook quite traditionally. I don't, you know, do crazy things. I don't really sous vide. I don't do like, I don't know. I don't use agar agar. I don't use xanthan gum. Like I just, I cook very, I cook very traditionally and it's nice to do that like I don't feel the pressure to be like super innovative um it's also that doesn't sell like anything innovative does hmm. not sell so there's that issue you have a business side of it of like I need to make money like this is my yeah. this is how I'm paying my bills I have to be able to make money I have to choose items that are going to sell and that's been difficult as well because I'm catering towards families i'm not catering towards individuals like if you have a takeaway you can choose individual portions that mm. currently is something i've decided not to do because it just financially doesn't make as en en enough sense to be able to do individual portions and deliver yeah. them um it's just it's too costly but if you force people to choose like larger portions then um it basically forces them to well, it makes it more worthwhile with like yeah. deliveries, like yeah, rather than delivering a meal yeah. for twenty pounds, just delivering a meal for a hundred pounds, yeah. whatever it is. Like, yeah. and so I mean, it just makes more sense. 
there's yeah eventually i might be doing two-person portions we'll probably get there at some point but um or individual portions haven't decided but we'll we'll see how that goes um but yeah at the moment it's it's catering towards families and with that comes catering for kids and so you have to choose things that are you know kid friendly that being said a lot of my kid friendly products like mac and cheese or mashed potato or like you know carb heavy people don't choose them my my Ooh. clientele is really quite health conscious and so they choose a lot of the vegetable mm. forward items and like lean proteins and things and so that's kind of the direction that i've been going into because i guess somebody told me well if i'm going to pay somebody to cook for me then i'm going to pay them to cook healthy items for me so yeah. there's yeah. that element as well so and you also do events don't you yeah um like pers- like private events and yeah so I, the queen's jubilee thing you're doing yeah, i'm cooking i do catering work during the pandemic i kind of had a pretty strict no going to people's houses um, I did a couple things uh, at people's houses kind of later on in the pandemic, and now it's pretty open to me being able to go to people's houses. But still the bread and butter of the business is generally just doing my meal delivery. And some people order um, meal delivery items for parties, so I just do everything in more of a mass quantity, and then they reheat it because it is a, a bit more costly for, for me to obviously be there and do the cooking and reheating myself. Mm. Um, it's not really reheating, but obviously like cooking for them, but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. So that, that is something I think the direction of the business will go more into is doing more catering work because I just think it's going to have to, um, but it, you know, it's about winning that work. Um, and yeah, the Queen's Jubilee thing in a couple days will be, when I first, our, my very, very first business when we were in London was making pavlovas for street food. And we never made money out of it, like ever. And it, it, from that perspective, was a failure. But we now know how to do street food. And so we're going to go to one of the local street uh, parties this time around. But I'm going to do pulled pork sandwiches, both like quite American as well as I'm going to do like a hoisin barbecue. So, yeah, hoisin barbecue with like an Asian <laughs> slaw on the pulled pork sandwich. It's going to be tasty. So, I'm excited. Why about can't that. we be there? Yeah. Know. Well, you can Ew. come down if you want to. Well, no, you're going to be in France, but. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's interesting that you you brought this up because I was going to mm. talk about uh, simply Pavlova because. Yeah. Uh, for 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 two reasons, uh, I think most people try to be business owners, they go through ups and downs. Uh, there's no such things as the overnight success. There's no such things as most of the time, the first thing you do is going to be a hit. Uh, mm-hmm. You need to experiment, you need to fail, you need to learn. It's just the path that most entrepreneurs have yeah. to go through. But also maybe like on a more personal level, knowing you like you're a competitive person. Mm-hmm. You, you also had aspiration about maybe having, you know, working in Michelin star restaurant and, and and you find yourself into a place of doing something totally different, uh, dessert, street food, and yeah. it wasn't a success. Like, can you tell us a little bit like, about this part of the journey and yeah. with so, the perspective, what did you learn from it? I can't remember what year it was. It must have been like 2016, 2017. And I came up with this idea to do pavlovas, um, which was a dessert that 
Ollie and Rosie's mom made and I fell in love with. It's something that I never grew up with. But I thought, well, you can do so much more with it other than just like cream and berries uh, on top of a meringue. And if you don't know what a pavlova is, it's a meringue with cream and fruit. And it was actually invented in either Australia or New Zealand. They both claim it. I don't know which one it is. They have it mainly for like Christmas because it's summertime in that at that time so they like have pavlova for Christmas with like kiwi and passion fruit but the main concept was be would was going to be do meringues with different flavored creams different fruit and different sauces and really the sauces is what you know changed the game in terms of what I could do and I was very proud of the products that I made um they didn't really sell particularly well but i was very proud of the product that i made the the idea was like allow people choose what they want and make the things that they want and um ultimately you know i had to kind of steer people in the right direction like one of the pavlovas i made was like i called it an elvis presley pavlova which is like a cocoa meringue with peanut butter cream bananas chopped peanuts and salted caramel And it's still one of the best desserts I've ever made in my life, but uh, it's very, very good. Um, Anyway, so we started doing that and we got into like a dessert street food fair in London and we were doing this out of their tiny little flat in London. And I was making like hundreds of meringues in this tiny little flat and we bought all of these different products and like to have a street food vendor, you had to have a... um, you had to have a tent and you had to have like you know a table so we spent all this money on these things and it was being stored in our apartment which was hilarious like genuinely <laughs> hilarious and um we just kept going we got invited to like one of the best street food markets called Maltby street market and that seemed like a really good successful thing um we were told that you could sell up to like 300 portions per day and we're like oh well that's not so bad uh we can do that and so i went in the first day and had like just a gajillion portions of these pavlovas and we just did not uh sell well we sold fairly well at Maltby Street it was later on that we really didn't sell but at Maltby Street we did decent but we didn't sell 300 portions it was more like maybe 100 and so we just like gave away a lot of the meringues um and you know it was it was nice to be able to create something and be I don't know the sole creative entity um and that which is kind of what I always wanted like I never loved the idea of like living in anybody's shadow from a creative point of view I really wanted to have my own business and have my own creative stamp on things so that was nice but it definitely didn't um it did not sell enough and so we spent a lot of time doing that and then we got into a different market and there was one time it was like April time Uh, And we were at this other market and it was over the weekend and it was probably like three degrees out and just nobody bought pavlovas because why would you, why would you, why would you as an outdoor market (laughs) want to eat a pavlova in any way, shape or form at that time? I mean, we sold 17 pounds that day. I mean, it was awful awful and we were it, and I'm I mean, sure it probably cost you a couple of hundred to actually go oh, there yeah I mean it was a vendor, genuinely like. terrible I mean at that mm. particular vendor it was it, it was um it wasn't 
that you paid a fee to have the stall they took a percentage and they were just like ah, okay but uh <laughs> generally you pay a fee to to be there so and, and you know we did we did a few other things and once we moved out to where we are now which is in surrey outside of london we tried to go into london a few times and then we got a car and the car broke down one day so I, like made all these pavlovas the car broke down and it's like well we can't go and so and it just was like that was the end of simply pavlova it was just like this yeah. is pointless um but the week before that i sold more lemonade than i did pavlovas and it was just like you know it just isn't it didn't make any sense anymore it's just like what am i doing like i don't do dessert like i generally am not yeah. like a dessert person in terms of a chef like i don't know why i'm doing this and so that's where having the space outside became like the most important thing in terms of creating is like create the space yeah. and then you can do what you want with it you can create and do and and cook anything that you want and create the business that you want we didn't know exactly where it was going to go but it's it was purely I had to have the space to be able to mm -hmm. to do that because you know my experience of being in a small flat in London and trying to work out of that was really tough. I mean, we had boxes and boxes of stuff like piled into that flat. It was hilarious. Yeah. But I remember we came to stay with you. And we slept on the sofa oh bed, and there's like a pile of boxes, and we were like, "Is that gonna fall on <laughs> no. us in the middle?" It, of the I night? mean, honestly, like I don't know how I lived like that. I mean, it was just. I mean, I'm. I can't even deal with it now. Like I've <laughs> awful, but oh well. Yeah. So something I like to talk about is also the cooking world, because mm -hmm. I know you, you mentioned some some things privately, and and I think the the cooking space is quite interesting and very uh, what's the word? I followed the word, but I'm gonna make it up. Uh, like it's mm -hmm. it's really contradictory. Yeah, I say like you know the the legend wants the woman is supposed to be the one cooking in the house blah 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 yeah but at the same time the professional cooking world is a man world oh yeah with mostly men chef yeah and can you share your experience as a woman trying to also navigate this space as i mean you all know i cuss like a sailor and it definitely comes from working in a pretty male dominated world <laughs> i it really depends on what kitchen you're in. And that was one of the reasons why I really, I kind of decided like, I don't want to do this anymore because if you're in the wrong kitchen and then you have to like quit and then move on and quit and move on to find the mm. right kitchen to work in that is respectful and nice and like whatever and like deals with women in an appropriate way. Um, then it just takes a long time to find that you know the the restaurant that i worked in in louisville before i moved to leeds was like that and it was very respectful and very nice but there were definitely other kitchens that i worked in that were just not not okay um and a lot of it is just like people accepting it for what it is but at the same time I, there was one time where i was just like this is inappropriate and i don't feel comfortable with this uh and kind of the response that I got from the main chef at that place was well you just have to you know they're just joking around if you want to be a part of the team you kind of have to deal with it it's like that's still not appropriate it's still not appropriate to yeah. ask me like what my favorite porn site is at work like I don't really care and 
um, I had probably one of the worst experiences, not actually working in restaurants, but working for an ingredient company in um, London, well, outside of London, just outside of London. And that had the exact same mentality as some of like the really, you know, macho heavy men oriented restaurants. Um, and it was very difficult because it came from the top down. There's a lot of drugs and a lot of like, <laughs> just like inappropriate mm. comments. And you're just like, okay, well, what do you do with that? Like, and it just kind of is what it is. Um, but you either choose to work in it or you choose not to. And I think it might be getting better. I don't know. I haven't worked in restaurants for many, many years. Um, but it was definitely one of the considerations of like, I'm not necessarily like built for this. Uh, I'm also not necessarily built for, there's a, a thing that to work into these amazing, amazing restaurants, you kind of have to stage and staging is working for free for like months at Mm. a time. And I fundamentally do not believe in staging. I just really Mm. don't. Because people need to be paid and it is inequitable the opportunities that people have to be able to, like, I was from a privileged background, I had savings, I had money from my family, I could go do those opportunities. If I wanted to go and stage at Noma in Copenhagen, I could have, but I didn't. You know, but a lot of people just can't. They just can't. They can't afford yeah. it. And I just fundamentally don't believe in that. And I've done a few stages for like very short periods of time and was treated relatively okay. But some of the things that they make you do is just also stupid. Like I spent five hours one day picking gorse flowers at, during my stage. And if you go like out to any English countryside and you see those really prickly bushes with yellow flowers on it that's what i did Mm. so i just pricked my finger for five hours pulling yellow flowers to make a cordial which is just like a simple syrup with gorse flowers in it and they thought it was really cool because it was yellow and i'm like does it have any flavor guys like why are we doing this you know what i mean like it just Mm. like i and that's that that's a type of attitude in terms of those restaurants and i'm just like i just don't care enough to do something like that for five hours and use free labor to do that and Mm. to make things that are aren't even tasty like and it's supposed to have you know time and place and you're using something local and it's like well does it even taste like anything does it have flavor no like why are we doing it then you know okay it has yellow color you could use yellow color from something else that's not as complicated (laughs) um but yeah fundamentally i think you know a lot of restaurants in general are are gonna struggle because they are dependent on this free labor and they're dependent Mm. on this type of like crazy amount of labor but it's free because they can get it and i'm like well why is that okay Mm. you know like you're you're saying that you're gonna struggle to pay people it's like well something has to change you either have to change your perspective of what you're doing and make it more efficient or not um but that also comes from like a little bit in my development background of like efficiency and creating things that are still tasty from pretty terrible ingredients. So, you know, it doesn't have to be like 
the most amazing like five hours of picking gorse flowers like that doesn't even do anything you can use pretty Mm. inexpensive ingredients to make things that are tasty as well like i don't live in a world of you have to have all of these amazing ingredients to to be a good chef like you can make things with pretty cheap ingredients that are still tasty it's interesting what you said about the male dominated kitchens and i'm wondering if there are like female dominated ones where it's like female only chefs and sous chefs and all the rest of it so Um, that there is like that safety i think a lot of people get out of kitchens and they start their own businesses like most caterers i know are probably women so i would be like a Mm. caterer that's a woman um and it's just ultimately like better hours i mean if you know you're, if you're cooking at yeah. the highest level, you're cooking 12 to 18 hours a day, five to six days a week. And it's just it's, it's just not really yeah. a good environment for anybody. But unfortunately, women, because we have children, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot mm. of women decided that that's not for them anymore. Um, and they do something else with their lives and they create different types of businesses that are more able to align with what they can do in their life. More sustainable. Um, and that's more sustainable. And ultimately, people need to do that in general, like whether you're a man or woman or you have to be able to create a way to, to work that is more equitable in general and make it easier for people to continue, you know, having a life. But... Mm. Um, you know that's one of the reasons why I never went back and and worked in restaurants is that it's just it's too much time. Uh, I also never just didn't have the health for it. But knowing you, I would say that you are a fairly ambitious person. Yeah, uh, uh, very ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious to know where this is coming from because you mentioned you know that you you had a privileged background, so you don't have the need you know for example to work yeah. yourself to make money it's not the the main reason you were doing it. So like, like what have, what has been driving you through the years where's this ambition coming from it's the same thing as i talked about in terms of like why did i work so hard on my academics it's mm. i grew up i got lots of praise for being good at stuff and i that's kind of just what i want out of my life like mm. i want to be very good i don't I don't want to be this person that just relies on inheritance to like live my life like that's not fun for me um i have a very hard time like having downtime and if i do have downtime it's like really downtime uh and it's like not efficient in any way shape or form uh and (laughs) i just i really have always just wanted to have a career um you know my mom always said like you know have a career do something with your life like don't just become a mother you know I think she really regretted that in some ways of just being a mom she needed something else in her life which is probably why she drank a lot so I just have this thing where it's like I'll have to have something else in my life other than just being at home with my husband like as much as I love him like I need something else and I have to work towards something um and otherwise it'd just be boring like what am I gonna do Mm. you know like I just don't I don't have like that ability to just like I don't know sit around and meditate and be happy like I'm not like you all like I just don't have that like I need to have like a little bit more structure in my life uh I really like having structure in my life I like having like this is what I'm doing in the day and what I'm you know 
and that's you know cooking is is kind of automatic structure at least the business yeah. now it's a little bit more reactive than proactive i struggle with the proactive stuff of entrepreneurship a lot and i'm not very good at it and it doesn't always it's not like i struggle with the things that are like you do x y and z and you don't get x y and z like mm, you do yeah. marketing and you advertise and you get zero results you get yeah. zero sales like i really <laughs> really struggle with that and mm. you know you just keep trying things and they keep failing and you keep trying more things and they keep failing and you're like well why do i keep doing this uh that's <laughs> the stuff that i really struggle with but i'm very good at like I get orders in, I order the food, I cook the food, I get the food out. I'm very good at that. Um, yeah. I'm just not very good at the proactive like marketing side of things. So. And you know, for let's say at the beginning of your career, your ambition was to have your own place and to, to be this disruptive, innovative chef, stuff like that. And through the years, because of your health, as you mentioned, because of opportunities, because of life happening, uh, you obviously changed path a little bit. What is your ambition now? Like, where is your, your ultimate goal? That's a very good question. Um, I've always said for a long time that I really want a cookbook. I'd really like to have a cookbook. Uh, it's one of the only like book areas that is actually growing. Uh, and selling mm. products and I just for me I want to be able to like reach more people about how to make good food and I don't you know I've, I've struggled with like wanting to do YouTube I find that really complicated and the actual like logistic side of that is not something that I really want to do um, but I just want to be able to reach more people with you know the food that I already do create uh, which yeah. will either be in the form of ideally a cookbook, but I, I think I need to build the brand of my business, which is called Educated Cooking, a little bit more to be able to do that. Um, and part of that would be opening up to national delivery for my meals, which we have not yet done, but um, we're currently just a very hyper-local business where you know, I deliver within like seven miles of where I live. Um, but you know that could change in the future as well so i don't know yeah ultimately i just want to have more influence it's just about getting yeah. out there and you know telling more stories about myself which i'm not very good at so <laughs> <laughs> when speaking about sharing stories and about cooking yeah do you want to tell us about your upcoming project yeah. that might launch soon or it's gonna it's gonna launch soon <laughs> it's been a difficult to balance both but i've wanted to do a podcast maybe slightly inspired by your all's podcast but i think that chefs um chefs have a lot of really interesting stories about where they come from and i think there's a lot more talk about how to make it sustainable for them to stay in this industry especially after covid and so I'm starting a podcast called Becoming Chef and allowing people to tell their stories about how they got to where they are, because quite frankly, working in this industry sucks in a lot of ways. It's a very difficult industry. You're working so many hours per day. You're on your feet. It's very physically draining. You're away from your family. You're working on the weekends. Like there's lots of reasons, but 
we all are crazy we love it like we love <laughs> cooking and it's it's in mental you know we have this thing where we just bloody love it and you know when i'm around chefs i love talking to them because it's you have this passion about this thing that doesn't make any sense why you actually want to have a career in it like why do you want to work in this it's crazy uh but we all love it and i just i want to be able to share the stories of how they got to where you know where they got to and why they continue going in this direction because it's mental it's absolutely mental to become a chef <laughs> i'm glad you realize that because it's not just me who thinks it <laughs> yeah i mean you hate cooking so you're a little bit yeah. biased but it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit mental to like you know make your career out of this yeah. um it's especially because it's like you know 90 percent of restaurants fail within the first two years something crazy i mean there's like actual percentages that are mental mm. um which you know I, I i do not want a restaurant at this point in my life but yeah. um you know i like understanding why other people want restaurants and how they chose yeah. to get there so yeah that should be launching relatively soon but we just have to i'm waiting for the it department i.e ollie to get things going <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. well so i think like, like like you mentioned just before it's also a good step towards your vision of having an audience to one day have a book is also a way yeah. for you to to get your name out there and reach people that have never heard about you and stuff like that so it's also a, a really good yeah. medium for that to to grow your brand as yeah. your personal brand let's call it <laughs> yeah i would love to be able to like also have people come in like if it's not just me cooking like we cook together and we have videos about that which would be really interesting but that's you know out of the podcast world it's more of like teaching you know how to cook yeah. but um that could be interesting as well so it's you know sharing you know different ways of cooking and that's something i've really missed working on my own is that i feel like i'm stuck in a world of cooking the same things that i have been doing since i was like 14. Mm. i'd like to mm. be able to like explore a little bit further afield and like learn more and do more and you know try more recipes i just don't always have the time or the energy to be able to be like let's explore a million other different things and it's like well does mm. it even sell <laughs> like i still have the business hat on of like does that even yeah. sell what's the point of doing that if it's not going to sell um which maybe i need to get out of and just have a little bit more fun and play when it comes to food but yeah. yeah it is an interesting narrative and i think it's a struggle for a lot of people that are trying to create things and make money out of it is yeah. where do you find the balance between what you want to do and what people want and mm. and that you you need to find the magic point in the middle where if it can be a perfect match that's great but most of the time yeah. you need to make but compromises that's, that's the problem with all creative entrepreneurs it's that yeah you have a desire to do certain things and you ultimately put certain things out there and certain things sell and certain things don't you know, yeah. and you just have to kind of go with it. Um, yeah. And does it get boring after a bit? A little bit, but uh, ultimately, like I'm, I'm proud of being able to make money. That is an important thing in my life. Like I like being able to say, like, well, I actually have a financially viable business. Like coming from my simply Pavlova days, like that was not a financially viable business, <laughs> and I don't ever want to go back there. Like I don't ever want mm. to go back to a point where I'm like making no money. Like that makes great no sense. Um, I like being able to do things that are financially more viable, but 
um so it's trying to balance that and have like projects that are like more fulfilling but then also have the time and energy to be able to like continually you know financially support myself you know what's really interesting listening to you is too often we hear about kids and then adults coming from privileged families and background uh we always hear about oh they have it they have it all because you know they generated x amount of money or the parent donated this business to them or whatever whatever and yeah. and i think as a society we always have this image of um you know like what whatever they have i don't know they don't deserve the praise or whatever because it was gifted to them and stuff like that and uh, i know is that narrative that you you have in mind and one of the reasons that is pushing you also to make something out of for yourself or um i've never really thought that anything's been handed to me but i also have to appreciate that i just because things aren't handed to you doesn't mean that you have an immense amount of privilege if that makes sense like i still had the opportunities to go to a private school i still had the opportunities mm. like yes i took it and i did the most that i could with it but i still had those opportunities and not everybody has that and yeah. i think you just have to like accept that i had an immense amount of privilege but i and i feel a minor amount of guilt about that but at the same time you know, you have to use it in the best way that you can to move forward with your life. And yeah. that means that I have the opportunity to spend 12 grand on a kitchen and, you know, create something for myself. And that's great. Um, do I know that not everybody has that opportunity? Yes. Uh, I don't know exactly how to make it more equitable, but it's, oh, yeah. um, yeah, I, I think that especially on my dad's side of the family, I have you know, cousins that are incredibly successful and they were just as privileged as I was. And they were all pushed by this like internal thing to be good at what we do, um, no matter kind of what it is, whether it's, you know, the most financially viable or not, like we're just pushed, I don't know, like this internal push to, to do well at what you do, almost in some ways to a detriment because we work a lot, but, uh, I don't know, it's something that's been instilled, I think, in all of us, especially on my dad's side. Um, mm. And I don't really know how to, like, be happy without it, if that makes any sense. Like, mm. when things are really failing in my life, I, I'm the most unhappy. I'm kind of the most mm. content when I have, you know, viable and tangible success to look at, um, which is probably not particularly great in terms of my mental health but uh it's you know it, it that's what exists in my life and and you know i'm always kind of worried about having the tangible success um yeah. which i don't really feel like i have yet but you know well that might be just an entrepreneurial thing where you just like never feel like you've made it like you, the goalpost every constantly moves <laughs> probably yeah. Yeah. yeah so like but also my question also is like how do you define success is your number is it uh i don't know uh, a status i like... think i think part part of what i have always wanted is to have like a voice within the food industry and be able to like hmm. You know, part of that would be, you know, having a cookbook, but also being able to be like featured on TV. Like that's, I would love that, but it's just trying to be able to create that voice and, you know, getting yeah. the confidence to do that as well. Um, I'm very mm. 
shy and so it's difficult to like be confident enough to like go and and I also just like don't like the logistics of like creating videos that's like if somebody could create the videos for me and I just show up and I do the cooking that'd be great uh <laughs> I just do not want to spend the time creating videos and things so it it, it it's a little bit of both it's it's like I'm, I know that the direction that I want with my career is like you have to spend a lot of time not being financially as viable um and I struggle hmm. with that because I want to be financially viable but also have the energy to like do these other things and i don't always have the energy to do both so yeah. that's the difficulty so it's kind of interesting like you said earlier about your dad kind of went to medical school became a doctor doing those yeah. things and there are quite a few careers where you can, you're like you know you want to do something but there's not just that like abc and you get yeah. somewhere it's such a tricky like you know where you want to go but how do you like there's no the guidebook of like yeah. okay we'll do this first and then you'll do that and then you'll get a cookbook no and then there's on TV. literally like, there's no kind no of guidebook and there's no like way of knowing exactly how to do it and i don't really have anybody in my life that has started like businesses from scratch like this and so i don't have anybody to like mm. really look up to or to talk to or you know like there's not i just don't have anybody like that most of my family is more corporate or they work for other businesses or like my dad he's you know he's a doctor and so it's just a very different type of world and it's just incredibly difficult to like create space especially in a very saturated world of like youtube like mm. where you like you're starting in a very very saturated world and i find that really overwhelming as well because you're going to start from like nothing mm. and not get anywhere with it and it's not going to be financially viable and i have a limited amount of energy because of um because of my autoimmune illness and so it's very hard to be like let's take some of my chunk of time and do yeah. that as opposed to you know doing something that's financially viable and i can actually make money with it so kind of like the busier I am, the less I post to Instagram because I just don't have like the capacity to deal with that. But hopefully that will change with like if, you know, we stay busier and, you know, the meal delivery diversifies a, a little bit and does more catering work, then I can get more people in and then we can have more time and do these other things. But it's being able to also have the confidence in doing it as well. So that's kind of the difficulty it's tough it's tough to do everything all at once like yeah. that's the thing as entrepreneurs you kind of have to you know do the finances do the creative yeah. stuff do the ideas do the yeah. branding do the marketing like you kind of have to do everything yeah. all at I once. i find that really overwhelming a lot Which... of it gets you know delegated to the it department and <laughs> ollie does it <laughs> is he the like is he the marketing the branding the financial he's like everything department <laughs> no he doesn't he doesn't do all the marketing but he definitely does like all of the financial stuff he does all of the accounts he does all of um he does a lot of the website at least he did all of this setup of it and so i can now yeah. take a hold of it and do a lot of the website develop not development but like post my own menus and stuff but i don't do any of the development part yeah. of it i just don't have like the brain or the capacity like speaking about how your brain works like i just don't like mm. youtubing how to work <laughs> wordpress you know like i just i find that really yeah. hard and every single time i do it i fail and so it's just it's a very difficult thing where like his brain works like that so it's like well i work in the food space and i'm very good at other things but i'm just not very good at that yeah. so 
um it's kind of knowing what you're good at and what you're really really bad at as well so i'm hoping that's a skill that's actually useful but i just don't see the point in doing things that i'm really terrible at so it's just (laughs) like if it if it wasn't ollie i'd be paying somebody else because i'm just not gonna do it yeah Um, yeah Yeah. i think it makes sense yeah thank you Elle. that was we cool to dive into your journey and your story um we got one last question before we we wrap it up are you want me to ask is is it your normal question where you ask like oh god yeah i don't know who to answer (laughs) okay you can start thinking Uh. while i ask it i'll give you a couple of seconds so the question is if you could speak to anybody dead or alive famous or not famous who you think would be super duper interesting who would you choose and why? Oh, God. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, I'd love to speak to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's the composer and writer of Hamilton, because I just think, like, mm. being very innovative in a creative space and completely changing Broadway is very interesting. Mm. Uh, and, you know... I admire that from a creative perspective. Uh, he completely changed the game in terms of how musicals are done, and it is an incredible piece of art, and I loved watching it. So maybe that's it. You, you went know, a few times, I've gone didn't a couple you? Times. It was our anthem. Yeah. Listening to the Hamilton soundtrack was the anthem of us creating our kitchen outside. We would go out there and like paint the oh. walls or whatever, and just like listen to Hamilton the whole time. <laughs> It's so cool asking that question because we always get different answers. Yeah. And I always say that, but yeah. like I've never heard of this person and I've never seen yeah. Hamilton. But it's always like it always brings somebody new to think about or yeah. somebody new to yeah. research. Yeah. And it's also interesting to see where your brain yeah. went because I was expecting, you know, I don't know your, your favorite chair for or yeah. your dog Bo. Or... I mean, if I could speak to Bo <laughs> and Bo could speak to me, if that was an option, hundred percent would have chosen my dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I would I love to, to mention, know what he's I have to thinking Bo today. In the he's probably just thinking, "I want treats <laughs> Me too. and I want food." He's very food motivated, my dog. He's <laughs> not really motivated by anything else. <laughs> Maybe... <laughs> very similar to me. So, yeah. Here we go. That's a match. <laughs> Well, yeah. thank you so much. It has been wonderful talking to you um, and sharing your story and learning more about you. I mean, I've known you for many years How long now. I've known you now. Eight? Yeah, yeah. Le- like, like years and years. But it's been fascinating so. to learn yeah. more about you and your background and you know the horse riding and mm-hmm. school and things like that. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Um, we will leave your Instagram and website and things in the show notes in the description so if people want to go ahead and talk to you or get in touch or get order the mac and food. cheese. Yeah, order the mac and cheese and the biscuits, the cookies. If you live in Surrey, then yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not in Surrey <laughs> wait a year or two and we'll get you going global. Yeah, that's it. But um yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me. You're Thank welcome. you everyone for watching, for listening, and we will see you again next Wednesday for a new episode. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.